Hello, baby. Want a kiss? Welcome to the Experimental Film Podcast with your host, Ken Hess. Teaching a parakeet to talk is fun, but the old method took too much time and patience. This record is specially designed to teach any healthy, normal parakeet to talk by using a scientific new method that is acknowledged to be far superior because a carefully trained voice, specially chosen for excellence in clarity and diction, repeats over and 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 over the same words, the same phrase, in a manner that most parakeets are most likely to imitate. Check experimentalfilm.info for information, interviews, and episodes. For the next few seconds, this record will be silent. This podcast is dedicated exclusively to experimental film and its makers. Welcome everyone to episode 10 of the Experimental Film Podcast. Today you get two filmmakers for the price of one. My guests are Chen Zhang-Yun and Steve Kosman. Welcome to the show, guys. Hey. Hi, Ken. Hello. I hope I got your name pronunciation at least close. That was pretty good, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Well, from now on, I'll just refer to you as Chen. So <laughs> make it easy on myself. Sounds great. So uh, why don't we start with you, Chen, and tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Chen. And I am a uh, Chinese visual artist based in Brooklyn, New York. Um, the media that uh, I'm embracing are filmmaking, um, still photography, and bookmaking. And Steve, how about you? Sort of less of a practicing artist uh, as of late. And uh, for the last few, few years, my focus has been uh, running a nonprofit organization called Mono no Aware, which uh, supports artists like Chen and uh, members of the community who have an interest in uh, all things celluloid. Yeah, it's very cool. I checked out the website earlier today. I, I really like that. I wish I could actually live in Brooklyn and um, be part of all the stuff that's going on there. There's a lot of a crazy number of filmmakers and artists that are uh, in that area now. You, you can, Ken. You can, you can live here. <laughs> you know, I would love to. In fact, I think I told Chen earlier that my daughter goes to the School of Visual Arts in New York, just across the river from you guys. But um, I'm sure she would. Uh, she'd rent your. She'd rent you her couch. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's a weird thing when you're young. That's the time to be bohemian. But <laughs> um, unfortunately, as you get older, you like a, a few more creature comforts. I, actually, we could, I guess live in Brooklyn. Um, my wife has a cousin who lives on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and she also has a cousin who lives in Bed-Stuy. So, um, you know, I guess we could probably find a place to live. Not too bad. Yeah. So anyway, um, glad to have you guys on. And let's see, let's talk a little bit about the film that made it into the Experimental Film Fest, where I'm the director. It's called Breathed Away. Chun, why don't you give us kind of a, an overview of what the film is about? Sure, yeah. Um, Breathe Away is about a minute and 40 seconds visual stimul stimulation. Um, it takes you going through the emotions of tenderness, sensual, excitement, fear, and etc. Yeah, it's um, really 
beautifully done. It's all shot in 16 millimeter, correct? That's right. And uh, Steve gave me a lot of help in terms of producing this uh, video. So I'm really appreciated. What kind of camera did you use for it? Just out of curiosity. I'm always curious about what kind of equipment people use. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I used the Bolex H16. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. And is there only one or two places in the country to get 16 millimeter film developed? I think what it's called, um, I forget the place in California now, it just completely slipped my mind. Is that where you guys had it developed? Uh, <clears throat> no, actually, um, I sent my film to Maryland. There's a place called Color Lab, um, and I the film was scanned in New York City uh, at Metro Post. Oh, cool. I could just chime in there too. Uh, there actually there there's a whole network of places in the United States. Um, you know, I would say about four or five years ago, there may have been only three commercial labs still operating to the public. But uh, a few have opened even in the New York City area in the last two years, uh, one of which being Modern Oware. Um, and there's a, a sub sort of subsection of that, which is artist run film labs. And uh, so in smaller cities and even in some of the larger cities, groups of artists who are interested in this kind of work get together and ha either have spiral tank processing or. Uh, small commercial linear machines who are able to serve that uh, sort of artist sphere. So I, I think there are probably over a dozen now oh, spaces wow. you, could, you could send your film or a lot of places similar to Mono where you can come and do it yourself. Oh, that's very cool. I didn't realize that. I The only one I knew of, and I remembered the name, was Pro 8 Millimeter. Yeah, Pro 8 Pro is still going strong. Uh, Jacqueline's out there. At Pro 8, there's Spectra and Yale Labs and Photochem. Those are sort of the greater Los Angeles area labs. Yeah, very cool. I, <clears throat> it's so expensive. I bought, um, I think, three rolls of 7266 black and white reversal mm -hmm. millimeter and, you know, shot it. And now I don't really know where to get it developed unless it would be Pro 8. But uh, you've given me some other ideas because, man, it's tremendously expensive to have that developed. <laughs> yeah, you could I mean, you could probably do it yourself at home. Uh, in fact, one of the things that Mono does is sort of makes these things affordable and accessible. And uh, at the beginning of the year, every year we kick off our workshop series with a free workshop that's open to the public. It's called BYOBW, where you bring your own black and white in any format, and we teach Anyone who's willing to come, we teach them how to process it using a non-toxic developer made from beer and coffee. Oh, wow. Now, I know about caffeinol, but I didn't know that beer was part of it. Or is that, or is that for the person who's developing it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, not for this person necessarily, but um, uh, it's a variation on the traditional caffeinol formula that came out of RIT. And uh, there, again, there's a whole network of people who are expanding upon that research. Um, there's a woman, Daggy, in Berlin who's experimenting with different fluids as part of the caffeinol recipe. Um, there's a, a man named Ricardo who's experimenting with non-toxic uh, bleach, bleaching agents to obtain a positive reversal image using non-toxic developing uh, elements. And so this 
uh, takes advantage of the the phenols in darker ales to sort of slow down the active agents uh, of a traditional caffeinol, the caffeic acid and vitamin C, to produce a better latitude in the image. And the images and the results are surprisingly uh, very good. And the, you know, there's no tinting or toning. It, it's a, a very strong, reliable developer. And it's definitely something you could do at home. I encourage you to check it out. Yeah, that's very cool. When I've tried caffeinol on um, 120 film, and 35 millimeter film before I, for some reason I don't have the the good contrast that I that I really prefer. It seems kind of bleached out or something. But maybe if I use your formula, it'd be a lot better. Happy to share it. Very cool. Yeah. So tell me more about Mono No Aware. Well, uh, gosh, I mean, there's so much, and I don't want to usurp all the time here. Um, I mean, we're an- Profit organization. Um, we have a, a strong educational initiative. We teach 60 workshops a year to over 700 participants just here in Brooklyn. We have an outreach program. We teach in other cities. Uh, we do supplemental education. I think the closest to you, we, we did teach at OKU, uh, a workshop intensive at that school. Um, we have a reference library of books related to history, theory, technical manuals related to cinema. Anything anyone learns to use in any of the workshops is accessible outside of the classroom. We like to encourage and foster continued practice. Uh, we're the only motion picture film distributor in Brooklyn. Uh, and we're also a fully functioning lab. Uh, you can come here and rent a camera, pick up film, come back and develop it yourself. You can scan it. You can project it here. We have a micro cinema. We have optical printers, contact printers, tiling machines, animation stands, uh, everything that you would want to start and end on film. Dang, I really need to be in Brooklyn. (laughs) (laughs) Until I can get there. So you guys collaborated on Breathe Away. Uh, Tell me about your collaboration on this project and how it happened, how it came about, and and what you guys got from it. I think um, the collaboration was uh, very much based on um, what I needed in terms of uh, the uh, techniques. And because this was the uh, the second 16-millimeter film that I had done, so I ran into a you know, some pre-production problems and setting up cameras and, um, for instance, other questions like what kind of film should I use um, and things like that. So <clears throat> going back to the uh, the topic of um, how expensive it is to shoot 16 millimeter nowadays, I remember I was literally counting how many seconds that I have shot every single time so that I did not, so that I would not run out of the film, even though I think I shot, I used like four packs of the, uh, the 50, the 50 feet, um, film, but still, um, so the, uh, it was, it was not planned for me to shoot this, uh, tiny video. Until one day I was in my studio, <clears throat> I, was in a mi- I was in the midst of making my uh, a photo book, actually, and I took a break, and all of a sudden a phrase that just came into mind, and it was, 
take my breath away. Um, perhaps it sounds it could sound very simple or redundant or a bit cliche to a lot of people, but I don't know. Something happened that day. I just decided to do something about this phrase. Um, so I immediately sketched down a, a storyboard, a, a very rough storyboard, and reached out to two of my friends that I had previously met that we were going to collaborate on another project. But um, there, so I uh, so I reached out to May and Ginger. Um, who I casted for my previous project um, because I was looking for a, um, a real-life lesbian couple uh, in their um, early 20s. So I reached out to them and I showed a storyboard and um, some ideas and they were, they were cool, so we collaborated on this. And we shot in their bedroom and at Thompson Square Park in New York City. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I was going to ask you about your actors. So they they are an actual couple? They are. Um, it's interesting that um, you refer them as uh, professional actors, which I'm really glad. <clears throat> it's... Um, uh, Ginger, so Ginger had uh, had a little bit of uh, acting training, but the partner May did not that does not, and in fact um, she is a uh, a visual artist, um, and the drawing that you saw at the beginning of the film that was from hers. Oh wow! Yeah, I was wondering about that. So um, they didn't seem uncomfortable in front of the camera. You know, that's a hard thing for a director to do with people who aren't used to acting and used to having a, a camera, you know, two feet from them or even closer sometimes. Um, how did you make your actors feel comfortable when you were filming? Well, I think I kind of took advantage of the, uh, the magic of the bollocks, the camera itself. Um, but also I did not want it, this project to be one direction, one directional which would be me telling them what to do, blah, blah. Um, well, in fact, it's, uh, I want it to be uh, two-directional, more mutual. Essentially, um, the passion of making this film and making the, uh, the LGBT community visible, the passion of those that drove us to work together efficiently. Well, um, as I said, they, they seem very comfortable in front of the camera, and you took some beautiful shots of them inside and outside. Um, did you have any issues with your outside shots? I mean, on location? Um, no, not as I remember. I think people, people are cool. Um, I had some shots of the people that are walking on the, on the street and you know waving at the camera and et cetera. Exactly. So that was the day. That's what I was wondering about. If you had any issues with, you know, onlookers or, you know, people kind of hanging out or messing with you or coming up and asking you questions while you're trying to film. I kind of like that part actually, and um, <clears throat> the, well, there were people that who came up to us and asked questions because we were doing a makeup there, um, and just having the camera, like the presence there. 
just you know it can trigger so many questions and conversations and etc yeah so did you make films in china as well you you said in your bio that you were from china did you make films while you lived there no not at all um uh interestingly i started my artist practice here in the states do you think it would be uh i know you're from the wuhan area of china which is not very popular right now <laughs> but um yeah. do you think actually would, i'm sorry go ahead um, actually, I'm from southeastern part of China, so uh, Fujian province. But I did go to Wuhan for school for a few years. Oh, okay, that's where I got that's to like Wuhan. My second hometown. I'm sorry. That's like my second hometown. Oh, okay. Do you think it's easier for a person to make films, especially independent films, in the U.S. as opposed to China? Hmm. I would. Um, as a young filmmaker, I think just like when you practice martial arts and your master or um, your shifu might tell you that your biggest enemy is yourself. So I think that that concept can apply to filmmaking as well. Um, of course, it depends on what kind of film that you're making. Is it is it political? Is it is it is it not? Um, but well, from what I understand, that there are so many films nowadays are making in China. So, if you were referring to the access to the equipment and to other accessibilities possibilities, I don't think that would be a problem. But really depends on what kind of film that you want to make and how big you want it goes. And I don't know. I mean, Steve, you've you've made some films outside of America, right? Yeah. In Europe. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I was in I was in Beijing two years ago and shot a film on sixteen and collaborated with a few uh, local filmmakers there. Um, I mean, I, I think that's maybe uncommon. <laughs> We're the kind of people that would make it happen regardless of where we are, but. Um, I don't know, even though I run an organization that's dedicated to like a traditional film on film, I I think that there's uh, definitely something really incredible that everyone's carrying around a, a cinema camera in their pocket these days and that, you know, the the real accessibility of that is, is uh, the greatest it's ever been uh, at this point. It's true. This is kind of the new golden age for filmmaking. So I, I guess what I was really trying to get at in making films in other countries, we have certain freedoms or enjoy certain freedoms here that you might not in another country. For example, if you're out in public, you don't have to get people's permission to photograph them or film them because, you know, there's a there's no expectation of privacy if you're out in public. And I didn't know how that might play in, in, say, China or, you know, Europe or somewhere where there's GDPR and so on to deal with. You're listening to the Experimental Film Podcast with Ken Hess. And now, back to the show. Uh, well, I guess, yeah, I don't know. Um... Since you didn't make films in China, you might not 
know about that, but uh, I was just just curious as to how that might play out because you did film in public for uh, part of your film breathed away. Yeah, I mean it's the funny thing about um, just uh, you know live in this pandemic is I um I recently just created a TikTok account. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen uh, so many videos of people in China that they uh, they shot on the street and they posted on TikTok. So I don't know. Perhaps there's like I don't know eight seconds rule. <laughs> but um, I'm 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 interested to find out as well. Yeah. What is your process like from when you come up with an idea? For example, breathed away. Uh, you said you came up with this idea, kind of. Uh, randomly almost um, what was your process like from when you got this idea to the completed product how did that go for you well it was definitely a long process um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember well we shot it really quick in uh, three days um, the storyboard and meeting with May and Ginger that took about 15 days so but the editing process was uh, was a little bit was a little bit longer. It was about more than half more than half a year. Um, and my editor Caroline and I we were constantly debating and discussing what what angle that we could go to make this film different than the others. Um, so I remember we did, we spent the first four months and came up with an idea of editing things more normally or more logically. And then, well, and then once, one Saturday morning and I was sitting in my apartment looking at the footages and all of a sudden I just saw the flow of the flow, which you can see on, in the film. This flowing thing, you know, it can, it could be the takeaway of the color. One color leads to another, or the movement, one movement leads to another, or it could be a, a movement from inside of one person into, or the attempt to trying to go inside the stomach, the body. Um, so, yeah, um, so we did, I mean, it, it, it took a very long time. Um, to finish the piece from beginning to the end. Right. Yeah, it's it's kind of strange in filmmaking. Your finished piece is you know a minute and a half or so long, and yet it took a really long time. You know, all the planning and the filming. I guess the filming is really kind of the least intensive part of the whole thing. It's the planning and and uh, figuring out what you want to do, and then editing. Uh, that's really the longest part. What would you say is the most difficult part of making a film like this? To make a, as a director, to make myself happy and satisfied. I think that's the biggest challenge. Yeah, I would have to agree. Did you find yourself changing directions while you were editing, or did you pretty much stay with your plan the whole way through? Um, for this one, yeah, pretty much. Um, under controlled, uh, quote unquote. But I definitely enjoy those moments where you could just uh, go crazy or go irrational slash rational on set when you're filming something and 
all of a sudden you had this idea or you saw a different angle than what you draw on the um, storyboard and you just went for it. So this is an experimental film, obviously. Um, are all of your projects experimental? Um, how would you define experimental, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, I, I guess it, for everyone, the term experimental can be so so different. I mean, I, th I feel like uh, it's more of a. Uh, I guess that that depends on how you. I kind you of know. feel like everything that I mean, every art piece that I've created so far was experimental. I guess in the in the scientific definition where you theorize something and you have this hypothesis of what will come together, but just as in performing an experiment, it's a scientific experiment, you have this idea of what you know what you hypothesize, and then after you conduct the experiment, the results aren't necessarily what you thought or you don't end up where you were trying to get and from that you learn. So in that way, I think, you know, filmmaking, as you evolve as an artist, a practicing artist, you are constantly experimenting. Yeah, very true. Now I can see in the background there, cause you guys have video on that. There's a timer and uh, development bath tanks and so on. Are you guys at the Mono Noaware location? Yeah, we're uh, we're kind of coming to you live from the small wet lab. I can give you a little broader broader look here. Oh yeah, very cool. Gosh, that's because uh, I'm a former chemist. I do uh, computer stuff now, but I used to be a chemist. And uh, man, I love getting in a dark room and messing around with all the chemicals and stuff. So that would be that would be right up my alley there. Sounds like you're moving to here again. Yeah. yeah. It's really already been decided. Yeah. Well, I think my wife would, would appreciate it. I'm sure my daughter would. That way she wouldn't have to cook for herself. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I love that area. I love New York and Brooklyn and, and the whole the whole schmear, as they say. <laughs> so are you guys um, involved in any other film groups or meetups or related activities around there besides the your organization, of course? Um, well, yeah, sort of. Um, I just uh, joined this uh, Facebook group. Um, it's about the uh, women filmmakers in color. Oh, that's cool. Do you think that this is kind of an off-the-wall question for you that I don't know if you've been asked before, but being a woman filmmaker, do you feel like there are more or better opportunities for you now than there were a few years ago? Um, Steve might have more authentic <laughs> answer to me because I, I'm literally just uh, started. Um, even though I have a uh, background in visual art, um, but kind of. I, I mean, I, I don't think that uh, you know, the opportunities are anywhere near where they should be necessarily. Um, but certainly there's been a, a more like visual presence in terms of those opportunities. Uh, one of which being the 
the New York Foundation for the Arts uh, just even last year started a specific grant towards uh, female identifying filmmakers here in New York and granting 1.5 million a year to those who are practicing uh, in a variety of genres. So I, I think that the opportunities are increasing, certainly, um, but more more sort of implies in comparison to something. So I'm not sure uh, uh, more compared to what necessarily, but. Yeah, I understand. I'm, I'm really hopeful that uh, a lot more women filmmakers feel empowered to go forward. And that, that's why I'm glad someone like yourself is, is actually um, out there doing it. And, you know, that you guys are fostering new filmmakers and new actors, even in getting involved in, in uh, projects like this. So my question for you is, um, who are your inspirations? Do you have, uh, you know, films or filmmaker inspirations that, that uh, you kind of use as a touchstone? I think um, just being alive is, the, is my biggest inspiration so far. <laughs> um, but I've been looking at Wing Wenders and um, Chris Marker. And I'm really inspired by the work that gets made here, you know. Um, I'm really fortunate in that I get to meet hundreds of people a year, you know, like Chen, who come in and create something unique and um, really express themselves and in a way I get to know each of these people better, uh, you know, through their work. And uh, it's very, I mean, it sounds very professorial, but really I am inspired by the people who come through and the participants of the workshops and the work that they make. Yeah, I would be too. I mean, just seeing all that happening and all the young filmmakers and, and people doing things. I mean, that's the, I don't know, to me, when you have a, a collective like that, it seems like everyone inspires each other. And not only do you create better projects, you also, I don't know, it seems like the collaboration is just something fun and, and it, it, it's um, energizing, I guess you could say. Do you, is that what you find? Absolutely. I, I agree too. I mean, I think like just being here at uh, Manawari and you are aware, or at least I am aware that I can have someone in my back and just help me out regardless what. And, you know, the more, the more I get to know people here, the safer that I feel like to be here. And when I go out and make films, I knew that I would not be left alone. That's good. I want you to make a lot more films because I really like Breathe the Ray and I, I think it's inspired and I really enjoyed watching it and so did the other judges. Uh, we had five judges. I don't know if I uh, explained this fully in the emails I sent out to everyone, but we had five judges, two men, two women, and myself as a fifth in case there were any close calls or anything. They weren't. Everything was very decisive. So um, there were no guesses as to which films were liked the best by the judges. So, um, you know, that was fortunate for us. But, um, oh, and also we, uh, in Film Freeway, you can hide the details of the filmmaker. So no one had any idea, uh, background, gender experience, and so on. I mean, all you really see is the film. 
and you judge just based on the film, which is the way I wanted to do it, where everybody was blind and couldn't, you know, couldn't have any prejudices. All they saw was the film, and that's what they judged. Cool. Yeah. So I felt I felt good about that, and surprisingly enough, um, we had a, a large number. I haven't done an exact count, but we had a large number of female filmmakers, and I'm I was super impressed by that. Also super impressed by the number of female filmmakers that that made it into the, uh, you know, the accepted round, the uh, official selections. So I'm I'm pretty happy about that. So I, I find myself drawn more to female directed films than I do any others. Strangely enough, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, I tend to I tend to like the the amount of uh, planning and detail. They go into it. I mean, like you said, you storyboarded, which is not something a lot of experimental filmmakers do. You you had planning meetings and so on. And it took you a long time to, uh, you know, really work on the concept, which I'm I'm very impressed with because, um, you know, some filmmakers don't even bother with with all that detail. <laughs> I think being a Capricorn helps. You know, <laughs> the <practical> side. <laughs> You write out everything you think and you want to talk about. That's funny. Yeah, I'm I'm a Leo myself, and I think more or less what I do is I go out and shoot a bunch of film footage, and I come back and go, okay, now I need to make something with this. So I kind of work at it from the other direction, a little less uh, formality to it. So what are you working on now, if you can tell us? Yes, um, absolutely. Um I'm working on two pieces, um, both are film right now, and both are based on books. Uh, one of the films is based on my friend's poet, Grace Julie Liu's uh, poetry book called Corinne. Um, we're making a, a short piece that based on her poetry book, so that's very exciting because I'm always, you know, poetry and film. It sounds very romantic. I don't know. I, I think they will be a good couple, <clears throat> you know. Um, anyways, uh, the other piece that I'm working on is based on the uh, a handmade um, photo book that I made last year called Avatar. So I'm using the images that are not including the book, plus my handwriting slash Chinese calligraphy, and just you know, and I guess you can say a multimedia piece. But yeah, I'm very excited about. Steve, what about you? Oh, gosh. Well, my current project is uh, trying to find a way to continue to serve the community uh, despite all that's going on, um, which has been interesting. <laughs> Understandable. Have you had any virtual meetups or anything? You know, so much of what we do, uh, in fact, it's kind of part of our mission statement is sort of working counterculture to streaming media, uh, thinking about the cinema and the classroom as a space for shared experience in person. So we're really about building community through these experiences and sharing these experiences and, um, you know, um, teaching someone how to load a Bolex uh, through a video online it really isn't quite the same. And there's plenty of content like that that already exists. So we're finding new ways to engage, uh, one of which is um, we launched a film care package initiative. So we've asked people around the world you know, to let us know how 
you know, what state their practice is in and what we can do to help uh, through a zero contact system. And through that initiative, we've shipped out hundreds of packages, uh, some of them with um, film stocks, some of them with just some splicing tape, um, uh, quite a number of them with uh, non-toxic developing kits uh, with coffee and other items. And uh, some of them are just a letter saying, hey, when, when your film is done, send it to us and we'll scan it for you. So we're, you know, we're finding ways to remain uh, supportive of the community at large. And uh, you know, we hope to kind of see the fruits of that labor uh, once we all get to the other side. That's very cool. I like that. So uh, could you guys each tell me uh, ways that our audience could connect to you and your work, like your website or, or whatever? Yeah, um, they can check out my website, which is just my name, last name plus first name, which is chenxiangying.com. And uh, the organization is Monono Aware, but like aware. And we're on Instagram and Facebook and our website's there too. And since your site's a nonprofit, you do accept donations of money and uh, equipment and so on? Yeah, snacks, whatever you got. <laughs> okay, next time I'm in New York, I will bring you a bunch of snacks. <laughs> well, great. It was a real pleasure speaking with you two. And, um, you know, this is uh, a great thing. I'm, I'm hoping you both continue your work and uh you know, maybe we can meet up again sometime and have another talk. That'd be lovely. Come. Cool. Great. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on this 10th episode of the Experimental Film Podcast. Our guests today were Chen Zhang Yun and Steve Kosman. Please contact me if you'd like to schedule an interview, sponsor the podcast, or point me to some cool experimental films. And we'll see you next time. If you would like to sponsor a podcast or schedule an interview, send an email to ken at experimentalfilm.info. Thanks for listening to the Experimental Film Podcast with Ken Hess.